It's so wonderful to be properly like present and to celebrate and just to see the years go by and what God has done in our midst. So so beautiful then to be able to open up God's word and, and to share from God's word together tonight. So um, I want Jesus to, to look amazing as his word goes forth. So when I read uh, this passage, First uh, Corinthians we're reading from um, tonight, it's a passage uh, I, I want to bring to us, to encourage us uh, about this topic of together. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do a miracle um, tonight. So why don't you join with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. This is the living, breathing Word of God to us this evening, church. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I mean, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? But since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know that through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering around your word and hearing from you. And Lord, I pray that that's what would happen tonight. We would hear 
from you. Lord God, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us see Christ, help us to treasure him and help, Lord God, bring us together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin with a question for everyone, and the question is this. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of an argument and you don't even know how you got there? Um, for, for years, it hadn't been an issue. Uh, you've tolerated it without a thought, and something has changed, though something has shifted, something has snapped, and tonight is different. Change is needed. This behavior can't be tolerated anymore. It's now a critical issue. In fact, it's not a critical issue. It is the issue. Well, what issue am I talking about? Well, I'm surprised. No, in fact, I am deeply disappointed you haven't figured it out. I am talking about, of course, crumbs on the couch. You know, you find yourself after having this kind of argument, sitting back and thinking to yourself, why did I make such a big deal of that? What was I trying to prove? When did crumbs even become an issue for me? Worse, it suddenly occurs to you in the heat of the argument that you are in fact responsible, but it's too late now to back down. <laughs> you know, one of the changes I've noticed um, since becoming a, a, a parent is that fights seem to be exacerbated by distance and the changes that I think uh, happen to your hearing uh, over time. Uh, you'll be helping a kid in, in a bathroom or in the bathroom and your spouse calls from the bedroom and says, could you help me wipe him up? But that's not what you hear. No, 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 that's not what you hear. You, you hear, could you help me and hurry it up? <laughs> and you reply back, sorry? And they call back exactly the same. And you fire back because you're feeling rushed and you're feeling scolded now uh, by your spouse. You shout back, how can I get any quicker? Because I'm helping him in the bath. And they shout back, wipe him up. And you shout back, I'm going as fast as I can. <laughs> And you leave the child in the bath, you storm across the other bedroom, you open the door, I'm going as quickly as I, and there's poo everywhere. <laughs> wipes, wipes, yes, of course, it was wipes. There's something about our very nature as people that means we're prone not to unity, not to peace, not to being together, but to division, to quarreling, to conflict. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The truth is that we all experience these deep passions and desires. And the closer you are to a person, the more likely those passions and desires will be pulling you in opposite directions. And the fruit is conflict. Now, have you ever considered or thought why it is that the most painful and prolonged conflicts we often have in our lives are in our own families? Well, it's because they're the closest people to us. And the truth is that the church is no exception to this rule. As the church, we, we have a high and we have a holy calling. We are called to be together. We are called to be a holy nation. We're called to be a precious possession for God. We're called to be a living temple, a kingdom of priests, a body, a bride. 
a family. And we're equally prone to division. We're equally prone to dissension, to disunity. And, and many of us, this is personal, we've experienced this. You know, COVID was perhaps one of our biggest challenges as churches. Uh, it pulled us apart, it isolated us, and a range of hugely important decisions with a range of extremely passionate perspectives arose in the midst of it. And so the question I want us to, to look at tonight as we examine this passage is this. How is it possible that we can be and stay together? Uh, if you're a note taker, I've entitled this message, Together Made Possible. And tonight we're really going to gather around the cross to see how it makes our unity possible. And that, that really is Paul's clear aim in writing this, this letter to the Corinthians, this passage as well. Read with me again verse 10. He says it straight up front. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's a sense of pleading in this message from Paul. He, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He's, he's addressing them as family. That all of you, it says literally, say the same. He wants them to be saying the same truth on their lips. And I want to show you that that saying the same, that same truth is Jesus Christ is Lord. That he wants them to be united in the same way of thinking and with the same purpose. He wants them to be together. And so as we go and unpack uh, this passage, I believe Paul's going to show us three ways that the cross makes his appeal to them possible. And they're going to be our three points that we unpack, but one heartbeat behind this message that I've already alluded to tonight, and that is this, that we, that we would see that we've been bound together by the power and the wisdom of the cross. The power and the wisdom of the cross is what has bound us together, and it's what makes us being together possible. So let's dive right into point number one, the power of the cross. Now, just by way of a little bit of context, because um, many of us are going to be new to, to this letter, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth from Ephesus, near the end of his time uh, in Ephesus. He was there for about three years. And Corinth and Ephesus were similar cities in, in, in a way. They were both extremely wealthy, multicultural trade cities, and deeply divided between the rich and the poor. And um, they were also cities deeply affected by pagan idol worship and loads of kind of worldly philosophies in it. And Paul writes to help this little church live as genuine followers of Christ. But he's received some disturbing news from the household of a wealthy widow in his church in Ephesus. And we read the following in verse 11 of our passage. We read the following. It says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Chloe's people, it says. It likely is a reference to members of Chloe's household, her slaves or associates for business or family members. And as two major trade cities between Ephesus and, Chloe, uh, Ephesus and Corinth, Chloe likely had business dealings in Corinth, and some of her associates had witnessed these troubles. The word Paul uses is quarreling. Uh, that word actually literally means hot dispute. Uh, the definition is the emotional flame that ignites whenever rivalry becomes intolerable. Hot disputes, fiery, heated arguments are occurring in this church. And so we read on the following in verse 12. Paul writes this. What I mean 
is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. There were this kind of practice of aligning themselves around prominent leaders in the early church. Uh, some people align themselves to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles and the founder of the church in Corinth. They're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm one of Paul's people. Others were aligning themselves to Apollos. He was the great orator, the, the great public speaker, uh, a preacher who was trained in the finest city in all the Roman Empire in Alexandria. Uh, some people were aligning themselves to Peter, the chief of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul kind of ironically mentions, or I follow Christ. Uh, his point is, and how about I follow Christ? No one seems to be boasting about following Jesus himself. And that is what Paul means when he says he wants them all to agree, to say the same. He wants them to say, we follow Christ. And so Paul continues, uh, and his tone is one of utter outrage about what he sees in this church. Read the following with me, verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember whether I baptized anyone else. Um, should the body of Christ be divided, says Paul? No, it shouldn't be. We should be united together. Was Paul crucified on the cross for you? No, that's ridiculous. Christ was crucified for you on the cross. Were you baptized literally into the name of Paul? You know, expression, into the name of, it means to enter into fellowship or an agreement, allegiance with someone. And so to be baptized into the name of Christ means that in baptism, you've pledged allegiance to Christ and His cause. You've entered into the community of people who are meant to be loyal to Christ. And Paul then speaks in a really tragic way. He says he's thankful that he didn't baptize many people in Corinth, not because he doesn't value baptism. I mean, read his big big spiel about baptism in Romans chapter 6. No, but that no one might be confused into thinking they're meant to be loyal to Paul first. That was his reason. I didn't baptize anyone except Crispus and Gaius. And I really love this passage, what follows. It's so funny. You know, in chapter 16, it says that Stephanus was actually right there with him when he wrote the letter. And so it's likely that Stephanus kind of pipes up and says, uh, actually, you baptized me and my family as well? And Paul goes in, yeah, okay, okay, except Stephanus and his household. And other than that, I can't remember if I did anyone else. Okay, it's not the point. It, it's so honest. It's so truthful. I love it. The truth is that in the church, we're meant, we're meant to have a loyalty that is first and foremost to Jesus and no one else. And let's be honest. I don't think we're going to face the temptation of loyalty to leaders first in one way, uh, in our church, in our churches. Um, they had the Apostle Paul, and they had Peter, and they had the great Apollos. And, and you guys, you've got me, uh, you've got Dave and Riley. Um, slightly less impressive than the list of leaders that they could have aligned themselves to. But don't for a moment think that we don't face the temptation to have loyalties higher than Christ. Career. You know that the extra hours are causing you to be unfaithful to your obligations as a father, as a mother, or to the church, but you're so close to that promotion. Comfort. You live in an apartment. You desperately want that house. Maybe you move, but with no thought of the cause of Christ. 
Or maybe you review your giving to see how you might be able to strip it away to make it happen. Kids, you know how important it is to worship on Sunday, but kids' sport, guys, I mean, it's so good and important for them. It's giving them opportunities you never had. So you compromise. What is the fruit of all of this? It's a community divided. Not around different leaders, true, but around different causes. Superficially, it might even look united. But look deeper, and it's a tinderbox. People are slowly uniting around different causes like comfort and career and kids. But Paul doesn't want to leave things there. He wants to give them hope for the future. Read with me, verse 17. What does he say? He says the following. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, one of the great criticisms of Paul in Corinth was that he was an unimpressive speaker. In culture at the time, speakers ought to be trained in eloquent speech in order to be taken seriously. They should be really showy in their technique, very technical, and they had to have a kind of really polished performance. Otherwise, people wouldn't take you seriously. And Paul says, God has given him a clear mission, and that is to preach the good news about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's his calling. And he doesn't want to do anything that would detract from this message, the message of the cross, because the message itself is power. And it is through the power of the message, not the preacher, that God is able to completely transform people's lives, says Paul, and to make them into new worshiping people of God. People whose primary allegiance is not to any one leader, but to the Lord Jesus, and therefore a people profoundly united. You know, we started this point by asking, how is it possible for us to be united together? And the answer is, that in and of our own strength, it's not hard, it's impossible. Sin runs too deep. Our selfishness is too pervasive. We can't help but think of our own wants and desires. I mean, think about it. Think about the last time you had a fight. And you know how you walk away and you rerun the conversation over and over and again in your head? When was the last time you reran the conversation in a way that you lost the argument? Never. Right? Because we're obsessed with ourselves and ourselves winning the argument every time. We are a people naturally consumed by our own passions and desires. Dead to the things of God. Unable to turn back to Him. Like corpses floating face down in the ocean. But the cross of Christ is filled with power. The Lord Jesus in His life never succumbed to selfish desires. He lived purely for God and for others. And he boldly went to the cross for us. And he took upon himself on the cross God's just anger for all of our sins and selfishness and failings. And he died and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again and defeated death and ascended to the Father. And he offers salvation to all who repent and believe, to be reconciled to God through him and filled with the Holy Spirit and spiritually transformed. This is the power of the cross. The power of sin and death broken by Jesus. This is the power of the cross. 
The Holy Spirit working in and through the gospel to transform people's lives to be like the Lord Jesus. This is the power of the cross. The power to save people from the wrath of God and their own selfish desires. This is the power of the cross that God can give people the same heart as Christ, a heart of radical service towards others. There is no greater power to bring us together than the power of the cross itself. And that's our first point, the power of the cross. But not just the power of the cross, friends, but the wisdom of the cross as well. Read with me verse 18 in our passage. Paul says the following. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word or the message of the cross is folly. You know, that's the word from which we get the word moron. It's a, a word that means, quite simply, it means stupidity. You know, the world is divided in two. Those who reject the cross, who see it as stupidity, and those who are on a path to perishing, therefore, and those who see the cross as power, who are on the path to salvation. You know, the truth is that with nearly 2,000 years of culture under our belt since Paul wrote this, um, that has seen the cross as a symbol of faith and trust, as something religious, it's so hard for us to understand how crazy and offensive the message of the cross seemed to be to the people in Paul's day. So shameful and excruciating was the cross, it could not be given to a Roman citizen except by special decree of the emperor. It was forbidden. This was a punishment for slaves and the worst villains. It was, it was not even to be talked about in polite society. It's like saying the word of the electric chair or the word of the Auschwitz gas chamber or the word of the hangman's noose. No wonder it seemed like stupidity to so many people. Read with me on in our passage, verse 19, it says the following, For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know, when we think about wisdom, I, you know, personally, I tend to think of like um, Yoda from uh, Star Wars, um, a wise kind of sage. Um, but that's not actually what Paul is talking about here at all. Paul is referring to something a bit more like worldview uh, than how we would normally think of wisdom. You know, at the time and in Corinth and throughout the Roman Empire, there was these different schools of thought that people would align themselves to in places like Corinth and in Ephesus. Um, systems of thinking about the world and how to explain it uh, in order to inform the choices that you'd make in life. There were many, many different schools. Schools of wisdom. Uh, Schools like the Epicurean school or the Stoic school or the Platonic school or the Sophist school or Sophist school. Today's equivalent might be like the school of capitalism or Marxism or feminist thinking or secular humanism or pluralism. Paul's point is, How much have these different worldviews, these different wisdoms, helped people to know God? And his answer is, they've contributed nothing at all. 
Paul says God was pleased to save people simply through our message, which is stupidity in their eyes. More, this is God's judgment upon all the so-called wisdom of the world. He deliberately chose a means that most intelligent people would naturally take offense at. And so we read on uh, in verses 22 through to 25. Paul says the following. He says this. For Jews demand signs and Greeks uh, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, to Jewish people, a crucified Messiah was an impossibility. It was almost blasphemous. The Messiah literally means God's anointed king. God's anointed king who would rescue the people of God once and for all from their enemies. And so Paul writes, they demand powerful signs from the Messiah. They demand that the Messiah prove that he's able to vanquish the Romans and deliver the nation. And so this idea of a crucified Messiah sounds absolutely impossible. Like frozen steam, or a vanquished victor, or a broken promise. It sounds like nonsense. And Gentiles also loved wisdom, and as we said, had many schools of thought, but they worshipped power and rhetoric and impressive speech. And a crucified hero seems like just something ridiculous. It seems like absolute folly. But in God's wisdom, what appears to be an embarrassing moment of defeat is in fact the pinnacle of his wisdom and his power. God's greatest display of his own wisdom and power, though it is mocked and dismissed by the world, is seen in what appears to be Jesus' greatest moment of weakness. As Jesus hangs on the cross, though it appears to be a shameful defeat at the hands of his enemies, in fact, it is the culmination of the wisdom of the ages. As he cries out in agony, saving power unseen since the foundation of the world is coursing through his veins. You see, human wisdom and strength are from God's perspectives, rebellious folly, and moral weakness. See, God does not want anyone coming to Him, resting on their own laurels and achievements. That's simply self-deception. God wants people to see for themselves the true state of reality, that they are in desperate need of His saving, His reconciling, His forgiving power. You might at this point think, okay, Brendan, it feels like we've kind of got sidetracked. What does this have to do with us being together? This is so critical, friends. This is so crucial. This is right at the center. You remember earlier, we saw that when Paul talks about wisdom, he really means a kind of way of looking at the world. He means like a worldview. He means that the cross gives us a completely different way of looking at life. Something that no other school of thought could have ever dreamed up. Something that completely transforms the way we think about how God works in the world, who we are and why we're here and what we should expect in life. You see, the cross calls us to embrace the mindset of Christ himself. In the words of Jesus himself, he said to all in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is more than power to save us. The cross is wisdom for all of life. To live in the wisdom of the cross is to embrace the mindset of Jesus in pouring himself out for the sake of others. Nothing has the power to unify us quite like the wisdom of the cross. You see, the wisdom of the world stands directly opposed to the wisdom of the cross. It says, follow your passions and desires to find yourself. You do you. The wisdom of the world says, search within, find yourself there. You must be true to yourself and find yourself within. The wisdom of the world says, reject all sources of external authority. Follow your dreams no matter what the cost. If someone wrongs you, you call them out. If someone takes from you, you claim it back. If someone looks down on you, mistreats you, you put them in their place. But the wisdom of the cross says something so different. It says something completely different. It says, deny your passions and desires to love and serve others. It says, find yourself in Christ. You must be true to Him, whatever the cost. It says, accept His Lordship. Follow His commands, no matter the personal cost. If someone wrongs you, forgive them. If someone takes from you, love them. If someone looks down upon you, mistreats you, you commit them to prayer. You see, it's not just that we've been brought together by the power of the cross, but God has given the wisdom of the cross to keep us together as well as we follow in the example of our Savior. But not just the power of the cross, not just the wisdom of the cross, our final point together, the people of the cross. It's more than simply that God has, in His wisdom, brought us together and give us a new way of looking at life, but He's given us a new identity as well. You know, we live in a culture where our natural impulse is to assume that what we feel on the inside is who we are. And the fruit of that is that it's easy to have our sense of who we are deeply shaken. A change in season Maybe you become a new parent and you feel tired and exhausted and your career seems to be dwindling and friendships have changed and you are left wondering, who am I? I thought I knew who I was, but who am I really now? Maybe you're on one sense following Jesus but secretly struggling with attraction to someone of the same sex or perhaps living with a sense that you're the wrong gender and, and just wondering am I? Who am I really? Maybe it's a prolonged season of loneliness and dryness in your faith, and it feels like something is deeply wrong. Maybe you've simply moved here from interstate or international recently with great expectations. You were once in your life surrounded by friends and family. You were once respected. You had a great career, and all of that is gone. And your sense of self has been deeply shaken. You're not the person you once thought you were. You know the common fruit of all these wrestles is? It's that they leave you tempted to believe the same lie. And that lie is, I don't belong here. This is not really home. I'm not sure I actually even really quite fit. 
I, I, I probably should go somewhere else. See, the cross offers us a profound new identity, identity that's not easily shaken. One that binds us all together as a family. And do you know what that wonderful new identity is? According to Paul, it's that we are all precious nobodies. Read with me verse 26. He says the following. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul says, not many of you are wise. By that he means well-educated. Not many of you are powerful. That means politically influential. Not many of you are of noble birth, born into the right families. Paul says, God deliberately chose the majority of the Corinthians precisely because they were none of these things. They were nobodies. Why? Why, why would he deliberately choose nobodies? Well, verse 29 has the answer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Isn't that beautiful? Did you catch that? God wants all people to come to Him seeing what's real, that they have absolutely nothing to offer God. No human being has any cause for boasting before God. But the trouble is, not all of us believe that to be true. Human wisdom and strength that seeks to find its way without God ultimately isn't really wisdom and strength. It's foolish rebellion. The natural condition of all people is to be deeply selfish and corrupted. And so God chose weak nobodies in Corinth to make it abundantly clear to all. Salvation is by His grace and nothing else. Read on with me. Verse 30 and 31, Paul says, And because of Him... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's all of grace that we've been included in the people of God. Boasting is therefore excluded, except when it's boasting in what Christ has done for us. You know, I love uh, this song, My Worth is Not in What I Own by Keith and Kristen Getty. And they have this wonderful line in it that I think just summarizes this so well. It says, Two wonders here I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Two truths I confess, my worth and my unworthiness all from the cross. This is the wonderful truth that should bind us together as one. We have this common identity. We all come together with the same need for Jesus. There are no differing levels of grace needed to be saved. There are no easy saves in the kingdom of God. We come all desperately in need. Just because some people do not see their need or believe they were less needy doesn't make it less true. Salvation is a level playing field. All desperately need His grace. 
our common need for grace rightly believed and applied should have a powerful, unifying effect on the family of God. In the family of God, we are always far, far more similar to each other than different because we all share a common need for lavish, abundant grace from God. Isn't our refusal to believe this truth nearly always the cause of our divisions? You think about it with me. Someone repeatedly sins against me. And so I grow irritated and tired. Why? Why do I grow irritated and tired? Well, because quietly I believe I would never do that. A friend I've been encouraging shows no signs of change after years. And I grow increasingly frustrated and irritated. Why? Well, not me. I, I was much quicker to change than that. They seem so lacking in commitment and leave the serving to everyone else. And I find myself increasingly angry and annoyed. You see, our identity as precious nobodies says, I am just like you. We are the same. At the same time, our identity as precious nobodies, those unworthy and yet of great worth to God, should give us a deep sense of belonging that doesn't, begin, uh, doesn't depend on our circumstances. We can embrace failure in life. We shouldn't be surprised. But God, in His kindness, chooses nobodies. They are precious to Him. And they beautifully display His wonderful grace. Well, friends, as we close our time together, I just wanted to end by just addressing three different situations that I just wonder that Lord put on my heart for us tonight as a church together. You know, first I just wonder that, and I wanted to address those that are perhaps new to us and, and settling into some great church in Warunga or Parramatta. I just want to extend to you in particular just a warm welcome to our churches. We're so glad you've joined. But do you know what the truth is? Trusting in Jesus makes you fully a part of our family. Though you are new, you are fully a part. And I hope you feel that. Secondly, I just, I just felt like I really wanted to address those who perhaps sense tonight that, that you've drifted to the fringe of church and, and you haven't actually been feeling a part. Well, I believe our passage speaks to you as well. I believe our passage would encourage you and challenge you with the reality that what we feel is not always what is real. See, the power of the cross has bound you to the believers here in this room. And the wisdom of cross has given you a way of thinking that we all share together. That is the way of the cross. You are fully a part of the people of God. And I want to challenge you to use this weekend to live out of your true identity, to believe what is real and to reach out to your family in love. Lastly, I just want to address those perhaps who are here and, and you're aware tonight that you've been not feeling lonely or left out of church particularly, but you've been living with a realization just tonight that you're actually more at home with the world than you are with the church. You don't feel lonely you more just feel disinterested. Maybe you're not following Jesus. 
that maybe you are following Jesus. I just want to encourage you. You can't rely on the world like you can on Jesus. Kids, career, a relationship, finances, they will not satisfy you. Choose an identity and a home that will last in Jesus. And I just want to invite you, come forward at the end. We'd love to pray with you that you would encounter Christ and feel truly at home here in this community as well. Would you join with me in praying uh, as I invite the band up and we close our time together? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your grace. To think that you would choose nobodies like us and call us your children. More, you would lay down your life and bleed for us that we could be welcomed in your family. Lord, we are, we are truly amongst the most blessed of all people because we have Christ. Well, I pray you'd help us treasure Christ more. Lord, help us remember the power that has brought us together, the power of the cross to transform lives. And you are faithful as John prayed earlier tonight, and you will bring to completion what you've started in us, Lord God. We are so thankful for the privilege of knowing Christ. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of the cross. Help us to live more in that, to, to lay down our lives, to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter the cost to us, Lord God. And we thank you for our new identity in Christ, to be the people of Christ, and to have an identity unshakable, precious nobodies, those purchased we don't deserve it. Help us to live in the good of it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.